Thank you. All right. Well, please join me in prayer as I uh, get ready to preach this sermon this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you go before me, Lord, that your words are my words and that my words are your words, Lord, and that you receive all the glory and that we are edified by your truth, Lord, that your truth would ring true to each and every one of us. It would edify us, uplift us, empower us, exhort us, and convict us, Lord, that we will continue to grow in you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've been going through this current series called The One New Man. And the goal was to show you, or is to show you, that the gospel, the hope of Israel, is the formation of one new man. Or, otherwise, we would say the redemption of the body. That's the gospel, the redemption of the body. We have been going through this series since April for two major reasons. One, some of you had asked for a more detailed understanding or an exegetical approach, meaning a Bible approach, to understanding the resurrection of the dead and the glorified body as well as the confusion of when I did a debate in March, and I seen so much confusion surrounding the verses of uh, the resurrection of the dead, the redemption of the body, and I felt that obviously my brother in the debate seemed to be misunderstanding those verses. So what I wanted to do is take us through a time of looking at all of those verses and better understanding what the context was really pointing to. We have went through a majority of the Apostle Paul's writings so far, and also we discussed Luke's writings the Acts of the Apostles. If you remember, I had demonstrated Acts chapter 24, Acts chapter 26, Acts chapter 28. Again and again, you see the resurrection of the dead as the hope of Israel, as the one gospel that the Apostle Paul is preaching. I believe that I have substantiated my view at this point. I believe if you were to go back and listen to all the podcasts that I've done up to this point, I've pretty much proven to you that the one new man, the one new body, the one hope in Scripture is to be formed in the image of Christ by coming into his body. This is the body that was redeemed, not this body, right? I'm a part of this body, so me as an individual, I get brought into this corporate reality. That is my individual hope, being brought into a corporate reality that we all share, being in the body of Christ. I've demonstrated that the one hope the apostles preached over and over, which finds its basis in the law and the prophets, is a corporate reality of life, eternal life, life in him. The presence of God given to us through Jesus Christ. Again, if you were to read John 17, verse 3, it tells us this is eternal life. That we would know God through the Savior, Jesus Christ. That we would have his presence now restored to us through Jesus by being resurrected from death into life. That's the gospel. So the texts we are going to look at today that speak on the resurrection of the dead, or what I am calling today the victory words of Christians, come to us through the Apostle John. We're going to be reading specifically two passages, 1 John 3, 2 and Revelation chapter 20. Ironically, those two texts are the texts that are often used against me in debate regarding the position of the fulfillment of the resurrection of the dead as a past event. I believe I will demonstrate my position using those two scriptures this morning, passages from those scriptures, and I will highlight how... The details of the resurrection are a fulfilled reality that we're called to live in, not realities we're supposed to be hoping for. You see, there's a difference. We're called to live in the reality of the resurrection, not hope for a resurrection. So that's what I'm going to demonstrate through the verses that we look at this morning. So let's look at the text. First off, 1 John is referred to as a general epistle, 
which means it was written as a letter intended to be passed around as a general resource among the various early churches. It would seem that Jewish Christians outside of Palestine around the time of A.D. 61 to 62 were continually having difficulties sorting out the details of Judaism, legalism, how much law were they supposed to bring in, how much law would the Gentiles have to be brought under, would the Gentiles have to be circumcised, are the Gentiles now allowed into the court of the Jews? They would have had a lot of questions. What teachings are false? You know, uh, for example, there was Hymenaeus and Philetus we read about. They would have been warned by these general epistles that keep those men out of your church. Their gospel's false because we know that Jesus had said that in those last days they would see a lot of false teachers, and there was a lot. So, again, these writings are generally leading the church away from the false teachers. False teaching was rampant, and that's clear by, again, if you were to read any general epistle, and when I say general epistle, I'm talking about the letters of James, the letter of James, the letters of Peter, the letters of John, and the letter from Jude. These were sent out to help inform the church and lead the church into a better clarity regarding true doctrine. And again, I would remind you that you can read these letters this week. I, you know, hopefully you'll take some time out this week to read through all the general epistles. They're all very short. They could all be read in a very short period of time. And prayerfully, if you read through them this week, some of the things I mentioned during this sermon will come to rem- remembrance as you read them. And you'll say, oh, I, I see what Pastor Mike is saying in that point. So the portion of 1 John that I want to look at this morning is 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 6. About five verses here. Chapter 2, starting at verse 28, and we read, Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixes his hope on him and purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this very purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. I'll stop our reading there. So in verse 28, the first thing that stands out to us from John's writing is he says, abide in him. Right there, abide in him. That's the gospel. And he says, abide in him because if you do, you will have boldness, not shame, at his coming. I find that interesting because when you read through the Apostle Paul's writings and he talks about that at the coming of the Lord, we shall be changed, talking about our corporate reality of what was supposed to happen to the church at that coming of the Lord, the word changed in Greek is alasso. And what that word means is to be of one mind and then to change your mind to another. So you imagine being a part of that band of disciples that are confused, have all these false teachings, don't really know what they're going to be. What is God going to do with us? 
If we know a coming of the Lord is about to happen, judgment is right at the door, and we know that devastation is going to be wreaked upon Jerusalem, what about us? What are we going to be? What, what is going to happen with the people of God? That's exactly what's being kind of phrased here in John's letter. He's saying, we know that we're the children of God. We know that we're called to abide in him. But as we see the coming of the Lord on the horizon, we don't want to have a shame at his coming. We want to have a boldness. We want to be proud of what we're expecting in him. However, we know that the early church, you read through the New Testament, that wasn't the case. They were fearful. They were faithful, but they were fearful. They were sometimes confused. They didn't seem to understand the full detail of what God was doing. And the coming of the Lord was going to change that. And again, we know that that coming of the Lord demolished that temple. And those Judaizers that were in that early church would have been very clearly made a witness, a a spectacle, as being false. And that would have convicted the church that we we have our foundation on the rock. You see, those are the ones that did not have their foundation on the rock. And their foundation was destroyed. And here we stand, convicted, firm upon the rock. So again, that change that was going to happen at his coming, that boldness that the church would have at his coming, was because the church would be of one mind and then would be turned to another because they saw the truthfulness of what Christ had, had said, that if they abide in him, they will not be ashamed, that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. These are promises that were given to the early church. So as we continue, we see it continues to talk about righteousness, right? Righteousness is found in and through Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 29. Righteousness was hoped for throughout the entire Old Testament. You know, in Job, Job chapter 19, verse 26, Job says that I believe that in my flesh I shall see God. And that's another resurrection passage that many people try to say that one day you're going to get a new body and you're going to see God in your new body. Instead, what that was is in Job's generation, if you remember the story of Job, he was beat up, he was downtrodden. It seemed that God was set against him. And Job remained faithful. He did not curse God as his wife had told him to do, curse God and die. He didn't do that. He stood firm. He didn't allow his friends to influence him. He stood firm in his conviction that, no, while I am alive, I will see God move on my behalf because I have a boldness in him. I don't want to be ashamed of him. So, again, he had that boldness to be convicted, to say, I believe I'm going to abide in God. Again, Jesus Christ hadn't been yet manifest, but... He, abided, he, he stayed with God. He remained firm in his conviction that I will see God move in my generation. And we know that Job did. Again, you read to the end of the story, things get beautiful, right? He, he gets restored. He gets more blessings than he had before. I have questions. You know, every time I read that story, I have questions. How do you get blessed more than before? Um, however, we see the picture. The picture that's being painted there is that he held firm to his conviction. He knew the righteousness, the right standing was to say, no, my God is not against me. So I'm going to keep being, you know, have my faith in him, and I'm going to allow him to bless me. I'm going to see a move of God in my lifetime. And that's what Job is saying in Job 19, verse 26. Also, we see David in Psalm chapter 17, verse 15. David says that, the verse that we had read this morning, that he is going to awake in righteousness, that he will not sleep in the dust, and that would be the lot, his end days. No, one day, again, hoping for that Messiah, He would be restored in righteousness to God. Why is righteousness so important? Because righteousness is what is required to enter into the presence of God. You see, righteousness means right standing. So we have to be in right standing with God in order to even approach him with our praises, our petitions, or to even want to see his will for our life. We have to be in right standing. That's why Christ provided righteousness, to put us in right standing with God, that we would have a boldness, not a shame. 
You see, that's where that comes from. That's good news. That's the victory of the resurrection right there. That Jesus Christ has given us righteousness that we can be bold, not shameful. Not filled with shame that we would feel that we need to be fearful of entering into the presence of God. Because we know we don't want to enter in with our own righteousness, right? That's... So, again, you see this many times. We see in Matthew, Jesus comes on the scene and he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that's what it's, he's talking about, that same thing. Those that keep their, their minds focused on God and don't allow the, in that time it would have been the false teachings and the, the Judaizers and all the, the pomp that came from the Judaic religion. They didn't allow that to influence them. They would be pure in mind. They would be pure in heart. They would be devoted to God. And we know that would come through Jesus Christ. And then we see in Romans chapter 8, the hope to see God would come by being the children of God. That that was the hope throughout all the generations was, who are the children of God? How would God make it manifest that we are the ones that have his righteousness, that we are the ones that can approach him boldly? How would that happen? And that was the question. That was the mystery of the ages. How would God bring his people to have not shame, but instead have boldness? Because again, you read through the Old Testament it becomes very evident why they had shame. Sin. If I'm entering into the presence of God based on my own right standing, I'm in trouble, and I'm going to feel ashamed in his presence. But if I could stand on the rock, if I could stand on the righteousness of Jesus, and what we're going to have to see is that that was actually proved, right? that that was the rock indeed. If I could stand on the rock, and I know that that is how the children of God are made manifest in this one new body right here, the body of Christ, then my rock is secure. And that I don't have to be ashamed. I can be bold in my faith. We are the children of God. The world does not know us because it did not know him. That's some strong words right there. The world doesn't know what's right in front of them. Many times, even here at our church, we look at the pews. We say, why aren't the pews full? We're teaching truth. We're, we're, we're trying to be as honest with the scriptures as we can be. And you'll go to some churches where they're not necessarily trying to be honest with the scriptures. And, you know, we, we talked about today with the entertainment. Why is it that people will sing the songs of this generation with so much joy and, and gleeful attitude, yet when it comes to attending God's ministrations, listening to God's word on a Sunday morning, nobody wants to hear that. Again, we are the children of God. The world does not know us because it did not know him. That's why the pews are empty. If you ever need a verse to remind you of that, it's because the world didn't know him. We are the children of God, and it has not yet been manifested, revealed to us what we shall be. Well, thank God that that is not the case for us today. We know what we are. We are the body of Christ. We are bold to enter into the presence of God because our prophecies of our Messiah have indeed been fulfilled. He showed himself to be the true prophet. They said that we know that when he is manifested, we shall be like him. The question, obviously, many people have is, is this talking about a new body that you will receive to be like Jesus when he came out of the grave that Easter morning? Many people are fascinated with that. They want a new body that's going to be able to do all kinds of things, like walk through walls, not grow gray hair, not wear glasses, you know, all the different things you hear from different folks. So, no, this text is not talking about that. It's not saying that we're going to be like him. We're going to be given a new body that we can walk through walls. Sorry to ruin that for you. But that is not the gospel. That's not it. This text is talking about a corporate hope of righteousness. Right standing, being cleared of the debt of sin, because in him there is no sin, as the text just told us. And this is what was hoped for by the prophets. That one day we would be made righteous in the presence of our God. 
Not that we would get a new body and, you know, we could float with him in the clouds. That doesn't even sound like good news. This is what was provided through Jesus Christ. This, that we have the opportunity to stand here. I have the opportunity to stand here before all of you, a sinner in need of grace, a former gang member saved by Christ, and to say that my right standing comes by Jesus, the fact that he died and he was resurrected. My right standing comes from that, that he fulfilled all the prophecies of that Bible. And those last days, he showed himself to be the one true rock, the one true foundation. And we see the judgment that happened upon those that said, no, we'll take our own self-righteousness instead. And you see the judgment that happened very clearly upon that wicked generation. Really, what the text in 1 John 3, 2 is bringing about is the thought that, okay, so we are the children of God, but we do not know what will come of us. Again, put yourself in that generation. You're the children of God. You know you're uplifted. You feel like you're living with God. You're seeing the, the, the truth of God manifest through your community, but you're being beaten, downtrodden, right? You, you, again, you read the book of Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is very clear that we're beaten, we're downtrodden, we're, you know, we're poor but making many rich. And he goes on to you know, talk about the distress of being an apostle. So put yourself in his shoes and say, okay, so we're encouraged. We're the people of God, but we see this judgment on the horizon. Things look really bad on the horizon. What is God going to do with us? What is going to come of us, the people of God? And that's what he's saying. We do not know what we will be. We don't know what's going to happen with us. But we know that when he appears, we will be made like him. You see how that would have been an encouragement? You have to ask yourself, well, what do you mean like him? What, what does it mean to be like Jesus? And that's an interesting question that we need to ask. If it's about having a new body, then that would be substantiated, that you're going to get a new body and you're going to be able to walk on water like Jesus did. You're going to be able to walk through walls. Um, you know, and all sorts. I, I, yeah. So you get it. I, I don't know where people want to go with that stuff. So um, what is it about Christ-likeness that was so desired by the law and the prophets? Well, as I read my Bible, I realize he defeated death. That's what was desired. No man. You remember when Peter was preaching in the book of Acts? He says, David, your forefather, is still here, buried. Jesus is no longer in the grave. Jesus is the man, the one new man that will take us into eternal life. Not David, not all the things that these Jews were clinging to. You know, our father Abraham. No, Jesus. Jesus is the one that your father Abraham hoped for. How many times did Jesus have to remind them that? You know, Abraham waited for me. Abraham saw me. Abraham knew me. Jesus defeated death. And I'm not talking about biological death. I'm talking about the death that plagued Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The death that's been felt by all men since that fateful day in the Garden of Eden. Separation from God. To make sense of the corporate body perspective, in light of this truth, what we are saying is that when we read the term body or soma in the Greek in Scripture, many times what it's talking about is an identity. That for us, we find our identity in Christ, the body of Christ. So the Jews, they found their identity in Adam or identity in Moses. And again, what did that manifest? They're sinners. The Greeks found their identity in themselves. And what did that manifest? Ignorance. You worship wood. <laughs> That's pretty much what that manifests for them. So again, what the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is very clear in the book of Romans that both parties, both bodies, so to speak, the bodies of the Gentiles, that identity that they had, that they, you know, they thought they were so wise, all the philosophy and all that strange stuff, you're dead in sin. You're ignorant, you're dead in sin. Jews, Yes, you have the law and the prophets. You're dead in sin. Read your law and your prophets. You're dead. 
That's the point. You are waiting for a Messiah. You are dead in sin. So anything outside of Christ, any any identity outside of Jesus Christ, you are dead in sin. That's it. The Jews looked forward to the time of the Messiah wherein even the Gentiles would be restored to the righteousness. Obviously, the question was, how is that going to happen? That was the mystery of the ages. This has been manifest in and through Jesus Christ. That's not something we're waiting for or hoping for anymore. We're not waiting for God to clarify for us how is he going to bring Jew and Gentile into one new man, into a new reality where we can now approach him together in righteousness. If that's a question for you this morning, if you don't know what the one new body was and you still think that we're living in a time of waiting for the mystery of the ages to be fulfilled, then you don't know the gospel. Because the gospel is that it's in and through Jesus Christ that we can find eternal life. Jesus died. He rose from the dead, defeated death, ascended into the heavenlies, and then at the appointed time, which we understand to be the first century events of the Roman Jewish war, he came to consummate the reality that we now enjoy. Salvation and righteousness in and through him. His body. The one new man that's being talked about all throughout your entire Bible. Being in his body, we are made like him. No condemnation, no death, being moved from death to life. And if you need proof of that resurrection, you could read John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus' own words. If you believe in me, you have moved from death to life. Is that not a resurrection? Okay, so 1 John three fourteen. If you believe in him, you have moved from death to life. That's a resurrection right there. So 1 John 3, 2. To be like Jesus. We do not yet know what will come of us, but we know that when he appears, we will be made like him. The church was given eternal life. That we no longer have to fear that we're going to be separated from God at some point in history. It'll never happen. We are eternally with our God through Jesus Christ. The mystery of the ages has been fulfilled. The resurrection of the dead has been fulfilled. I'm going to email most of you, a, uh, if you're on my email list, of course, I'm going to email you some notes on 1 John 3, 2, just for further study. I found it interesting that um, I found an article last night on 1 John 3, 2 from a fellow a full preterist teacher. And also, Tony Denton, a very popular teacher, is actually going to be preaching on this text next week. So I'll be glad to offer that sermon to all of you for uh, more details in that regard. So moving forward with John's words here. So now, I hopefully I've helped you understand what John's saying about being in the likeness of Jesus, that you will not die, you will not suffer the death that all the men prior to Jesus suffered. They were separated from God at some point. Even the Jews with their covenant, they eventually had to physically die and wait to be judged at the resurrection of the dead. So they were separated from God for a period of time. We know that the Gentiles were in the world without God, continue, eternally separated from God without Jesus Christ. So in April of the year 62, John was arrested after writing this letter. He's exiled to Patmos as a result of Ananias II's arrest of James and some of his companions, which was actually written about by Josephus. On the island of Patmos, John would be given a vision from God regarding the soon-coming revelation of Jesus Christ. This writing was intended to be distributed to the various churches in Asia Minor, whom would see these strange events taking place in Jerusalem. Imagine being in Asia Minor and hearing about all this strange stuff that's happening over in Jerusalem. This emperor has risen that's persecuting the Christians. Some call him the beast. His name is Nero Caesar. His name equals 666. And then you would think about Vespasian and Titus. Their names equal 666, and they're all persecuting the church. John writes this letter to inform these men that these historical events that they're beginning to see... They're actually a move of God. 
The goal of the letter was to bring clarity regarding what those events meant in the spiritual realm. You see, they saw all the physical things. They saw the emperors. They saw the persecution. But they would have been asking, what's happening in the spiritual realm? What is God doing? That's essentially why God says to John in Revelation chapter 4, come up here, let me show you things that have happened, things that are happening, and things that will happen. Sure enough, when we diligently spend time trying to understand the rhyme and the reason for the book of Revelation and willingly submit to the clarity that it offers, which requires some study in the time and culture of the writing, we can further find victory words in what is being explained in Revelation chapter 20. Just want to read Revelation chapter 20, a couple verses from that passage there. 20 verses 1 through 6 and then 11 through 15. John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, the Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and them that sat on them, and judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or their hand. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Moving into verses 11 through 15. Then I saw another vision from John. Then I saw a white throne and him who sat upon it, who, from whose presence earth and heaven fled and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from these things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So without getting into all the details of the millennium, you know, Revelation chapter 20 is a rather scary passage to read. Um, and uh, try to expound. However, a couple things I want you to notice in this text. Verses 4 through 6, you read about thrones. You read about people reigning with Christ. During the first century, who are those that reigned with Christ? It was those that put their faith in Jesus. They participated in the first resurrection. I just told you, John chapter 5, right, and 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. They say that you moved from death to life. That's a resurrection. There's your first resurrection. Who was reigning with Christ in the first century? The saints that put their faith in him, the saints that were getting killed and beheaded and run, you know, persecuted all over the place for putting their faith in Jesus Christ. That was the first resurrection. So the next thing we're going to have to get clarity on is what is the second resurrection. But I just want to spend some time here, a thousand years. Again, what it's saying is they reigned with Christ for a certain period of time. Again, there was a reign of Christ leading up to A.D. 64 until the time of Nero, when Nero began to persecute the church, and it would hardly seem that the church was reigning at that point. Rather, you would say, Satan is on the loose. That would have been the proper phrase for that. So we see in Ephesians 2, 6 that the saints that put their faith in Jesus Christ were seated in heavenly places. They were raised up and seated in heavenly places. That is the first resurrection. Those saints that put their faith in Christ, can they experience a second death? Can they experience death at all? No. You put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have moved from death to life. So that's your first resurrection right there. 
They can't die. They can't experience the second death. Blessed are those who take part in that first resurrection because to them, the second death had no place. They would never have to suffer a separation from God. However, a Jew that died outside of Christ, they would have had to die and they would have had to been judged by the book of life at the resurrection of the dead which is something that would have happened in AD 70. Again, a conceptual reality of God judging everybody. That's what you read right there. When it says the sea gave up the dead and the Hades and death gave up the dead, what it's saying is all the dead were judged, everybody, based on what God was doing in that generation. That you were either in Christ or you were outside of Christ. The Jews would have been judged according to the book of the law. They were dead in sin if they were judged according to the book. The, the sea, when the sea gives up their dead... See, when I read that passage, I'm reminded of Romans 1 through 3. Because Romans 1 through 3, God says, all are guilty before me. All are guilty of sin. Not one is righteous. And that's the point of what he's saying here is that everybody, if you do not put your faith in Jesus Christ and take part in that first resurrection, the only resurrection you have is that, for this generation, was that resurrection that was to come at the coming of the Lord, and they would be judged based on their deeds. And I'll tell you, I don't think anybody in this room wants to be judged by our deeds. We don't want our own righteousness. We want his righteousness. The first resurrection is to take part in his righteousness because then you have no shame. You have that boldness because you have his righteousness. So those are victory words for the church. Prayerfully, you now understand that these texts are not talking about a new body that you will receive at some time in the future to be like Jesus. Rather, our resurrected identity, being in the body of Christ, in contrast to the various dead ways we could seek to define ourselves and find life outside of Christ, this is what the Father hoped for, for us to find fulfillment and life eternal in and through Jesus Christ. We have the righteousness of Christ. We can approach God's presence boldly because we, have, we are members of this body, this redeemed body. We have his likeness. Blessed and holy is he who takes part in the first resurrection, our confession of faith, Over these, the second death has no authority. That was not only for the thousand years. That is for everybody that puts their faith in Jesus Christ. We learn from their example. Those that reigned with Christ for a completed amount of time, a thousand years, their example is that they were raised up and they were seated in in authoritative places. They were seated in heavenly places. And that's what we have in Jesus Christ. We get seated in heavenly realms. So, saints, I conclude my message this morning not simply giving you details and prayerfully clarity in regards to our resurrected reality. Rather, I want to challenge you this morning. If what I've labored again and again through this series to demonstrate is that fulfillment, the resurrection of the dead, is a reality that we now have in Jesus Christ, moved from death to life, never to suffer the absence of God, the separation from God that each and every one of us formerly knew in whatever bodily identification that we had outside of this. The resurrection of the dead as a fulfilled reality substantiates our faith in him. Knowing that his mediation and sacrifice on our behalf was sufficient and therefore we can enjoy the presence of God as long as we remain in him. Again, John told us, abide in him. All of that said, blessings come with responsibility. We have to admit that. We must be responsible and live in the reality. If we say that we're in the presence of God eternally, we must live like that. At our semi-annual meeting this past Friday, I brought up a verse from Deuteronomy where God moves into the camp of his saints. And when he moves into the camp of his saints, he requires something from them. Biblically, it's called be holy. Be set apart. 
Be set apart for the glory of God. So I ask you this morning to be thinking about some of this. In what ways are we called to be separate from those that are outside the body of Christ? If we're living in the presence of God, in what ways are we called to exemplify a different image than what this world is portraying? What sort of things do you believe should manifest as a people that live in his presence? How should our lives look? Think about it. Make it personal this morning. As you live in his presence eternally, each and every day, there's not a moment of your life where you're not in God's presence. We're eternally alive in him. How should we live and act? What are the things that we maybe need to be convicted to say, God's watching me right now. God is with me. I am alive in his presence. I think about if I was serving a king and a king was sitting here in this room, what are the things I would do in his presence and what are the things I wouldn't? I challenge us with that this morning. What are the things that we should be doing if we're eternally in the presence of God and that's a reality that we believe beyond any reasonable doubt? How should we live? What are the things we need to be pruned of in our personal lives? I guess the question I want to ask you is how would you live in his presence and how wouldn't you live in his presence? I'll end with this passage to highlight this challenge. 1 John chapter 3, verses 18 through 24. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. We know that by this we are of the truth, and we will assure our heart before him. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandment abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit that he has given us. Join me in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this corporate reality that we have in you, that we understand that there was so much biblically that went into securing this reality lord that the res the first resurrection the second resurrection and the hope of the forefathers being fulfilled lord but as we look at that and as we understand this reality and all that took place in the first century and all throughout the ages lord let us be convicted of the simple truth that we live in your presence eternally and in doing that reprove us lord exhort us remind us of how we are to live as your people what are the things that we should be set apart by? Lord, magnify yourself through us. Make your reality that your presence is here with us, ever known to us. And magnify yourself. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.